Our scripture lesson today is from 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 2 to 5, 14 to 17, 26 to 27, and from chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, and 13 to 14. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul, gave you your master's house and your master's wives into the bosom, gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And from Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 39, 42, 45, and 46, and 52 to 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. One of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, Woe also to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key to knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those from entering. When he went outside, the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. It is good to be here. And thank you, Dennis, for really orchestrating all this. It's good seeing my family. Um, Brett Chumler is over there with his wife. And over here, we have a bunch of nephews, Greg and Kelly and her husband, Edmir. And then there's Brian and Becky and Bola and Miles, who I'm going to embarrass in a second. The phrase, speaking truth to power, was first used in a Quaker pam pamphlet in 1955. Since then, the phrase has been used by many people and in many ways and for a variety of reasons. It's used as a nonviolent political phrase against political policies and platforms. It's used by dissidents against the leaders and policies of governments that they regard as oppressive and authoritarian. It's used by people working to encourage a more just and truthful world and a more equitable allocation of resources. Famous people who spoke truth to power would be people like Nelson Mandela, or Desmond Tutu, or Mahatma Gandhi, or Dalai Lama, or Martin Luther King, and there are others, like our grandson, Miles. <clears throat> two years ago, when he was seven, I had to have two wisdom teeth pulled, and then I called Miles and said, Miles, how much does a tooth fairy leave for teeth these days? And seven-year-old Miles said, $5, Opa. Wow, I said. Does that mean I'll get $10 for these two teeth? And without any hesitation, he said, no, Opa, only 13 cents. 
why so little, I asked. Well, he said, you know, they're old. <laughs> that also is speaking truth to power. And if we read the scriptures carefully, we have to conclude that virtually all the prophets of the Old Testament, and that's what Jesus also is doing. Furthermore, we can't help but notice that the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus usually weren't preaching to the people or to the common man and women of the time. They were talking to the kings and to the religious leaders of their time. They weren't scolding the masses for their sins. They were pointing out the sins of their leaders. They weren't preaching to the crowds. They were challenging the most revered and powerful people of their day, the kings and the priests and the wealthier upper classes. They were speaking truth to power. This morning Old Testament lesson recalls the story of David's affair with Bathsheba. <clears throat> King David, who was the most powerful and respected political and religious leader of the Old Testament, he was the man who killed the giant Goliath and united Israel and was anointed the first king of both Israel and Judah. Yes, it's that David who saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, slept with her, which is a nice way of describing a situation in which he probably didn't have much choices. And she became pregnant with his child. And then worse still, he had her husband killed by having him sent to the front lines of the army during a bloody battle. In response, Nathan, a simple and relatively unknown prophet, he went to David and told the parable we heard this morning. And that parable spoke truth to power. It indicted David. It revealed his, 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 his hypocrisy and his dishonesty, and it highlighted his sinfulness. As Nathan said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I gave you all of Israel and Judah. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this evil in his eyes? Yes, a simple and relatively unknown court prophet took a risk and he spoke God's truth to the most powerful man of his time. A thousand years later, we also see Jesus speaking truth to power. Many of his sermons and many of his parables weren't directed at the common man or to the masses, but to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders. In fact, virtually every time he is being challenged, every time his words are being questioned or as he is being tested, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees who are challenging him, questioning him, testing him, and to whom he responds. This morning's New Testament lesson was just one example of where Jesus rails against the Pharisees. And he offers a list of his criticisms and complaints against the most powerful and respected Jews of his time. He wasn't challenging the irreligious or the unreligious or the unchurched people of his time. Instead, he was focusing on the religious leaders. He said things like, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In other words, you are only going through the motions of being religious. Or he says, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your resources, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear also, Jesus saying, you Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You don't obey the really important things of the law, 
namely being fair, showing mercy, and being faithful. Ouch. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? And pretty surprising since the Pharisees, they were the good people at that time. They, went, they were the people that went to church every week. They were the ones who thought they were following God's word, who thought they were following the teachings of the Old Testament. It'd be kind of like if Jesus said the same things to us today. Unfortunately, there are many passages like that, but somehow we've forgotten them. We tend to forget how often Jesus challenged the most religious people, people like us, and how often they were shocked and scandalized by his words and actions. And we forget how he acted in ways that offended their preconceived notions of religiosity and faithfulness. Needless to say, all of this makes us wonder if Nathan or any of those Old Testament prophets or Jesus came back today, what would they do and what would they say about us? Personally, I think their basic message would be the same, namely that we should love God and love our neighbor. But if Jesus returned today, I also think he'd be arguing not only with the average American Christian who perhaps wasn't loving their neighbors enough or showing enough compassion for all people, he might also be fighting with people like you and me, and particularly with ordained leaders like me who get to wear special gowns and hold special titles because, let's be clear, we are the religious people of our society and we're still some of us, like me, are the historical equivalents of the Pharisees. Another big ouch. And that does make us wonder, how would we react to one of those Old Testament prophets or Jesus himself? Part of our human nature is to be religious, and we want to seek out ways to be more faithful to our beliefs. But a part of us, part of our human nature, also is to cherry-pick the sections of the Gospels that comfort us, that make us feel good, and reassure us. And we tend to ignore those parts that make us uneasy. Perhaps like the Pharisees, we like the passages that support our beliefs and our prejudices, and we like to ignore those that hit us between the lines. For instance, think about all the devoted, devoted Christians today who denounce homosexuality. And yet, they love to eat pork chops and ribs and bacon. Let's be very clear. There's very few biblical passages which that condemn homosexuality, and virtually none that condemn lesbian homosexuality. On the other hand, there are many, many, many parts of the Old Testament that prohibit eating pork. Here's one from Leviticus 11, for instance. The pig is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcass, because they are unclean to you. Or from Deuteronomy 14, the pig is unclean for you. How many times do they have to say that? Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcass you shall not touch. So now let's be honest. How many of you like pork, pork chops, pulled pork, and bacon? Raise your hands. Look at all the sinners out there, Dennis. <laughs> I just returned from leading several tours out west, and I have to confess that in some of those old historical lodges in the national parks, they have phenomenal buffet breakfasts. And I love those piles of bacon, and I usually overindulge. 
And how many of you have enjoyed playing football or like football or just tossed a real football, in other words, a pigskin around back in the days when they made the footballs with pigskins? Alas, you touched the carcass of a pig. And so, are you a sinner? Sadly, think about all the very religious Christians today who continue to cherry pick their Bible passages just to support their prejudices. Think about all those churches which are not fighting for racial justice or basic care for those in need. What would Jesus say about all those mega churches which have been built on the income of tithes while their members consistently vote to eliminate food stamps and Medicaid and basic health services for the poor and elderly and who want to ignore the needs of desperate asylum seekers and the homeless? Think about all the Christian ministers and leaders who are preaching against those who restrict aid for the poor. Think about all those ministers who are supporting politicians and policies which are opposed to programs designed to help the poor and the elderly and the disabled. Some of us over 65, raise your hands. Think about all those programs which benefit us which keep getting attacked. Think about all those people who go to nursing homes on Medicaid and they're dependent on it. What would Jesus say about the leaders of the church who are fighting those programs? In the final analysis, we like to forget that Jesus usually wasn't challenging and criticizing the common sinners of his day, the adulterers, the thieves, the inactive or inattentive church members. Instead, he was focusing on the powerful, the successful, and the religious. And that's because they are the people who could make our society a much more loving, compassionate place. He focuses on people like us because we have the power and the capacity to make this world much more like the kingdom on earth as it should be in heaven. In other words, Jesus focused on people like us. People like the leaders of the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church and the Episcopal Church and the Baptist Churches. And that makes reading the Bible sometimes painful. When I was at Princeton Seminary, Dr. Donald McLeod used to occasionally remind us, again and again, if you read the Bible and like what you read, you probably should go back and read it again because you probably didn't understand what you were reading. Unfortunately, I should say no, fortunately, the good news is that we can change and we can be forgiven. In the Old Testament story of Nathan and David, David quickly repents. He doesn't get off the hook completely, and the first son he conceived with Bathsheba does eventually die. But because of his recognition of his sins and his ongoing, continuing faithfulness after that event, God forgave him. And eventually, David and Bathsheba had another son, Solomon, who later became one of the leaders and most important figures of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Likewise, Jesus offers forgiveness to us. If we recognize our mistakes, our hypocrisy, our failure to really follow God's word, or our unwillingness to speak truth to power, God will forgive us. In so many ways, Jesus attacks our false religious piety, but he also offers forgiveness to those who recognize they've been playing games. He condemns our efforts to look religious while ignoring the needs of others. He rebukes those who want to be comforted, but rejoices in those who comfort others. He challenges those who think they are better than others, but praises those who treat others better. He always welcomes those who eventually accept 
the important teachings of the law, the need to be fair and show mercy and be faithful and follow the commandments to love all people. Yes, the bad news is that we could all be guilty, as guilty as David was and those Pharisees, but the good news is we can be saved and reformed and changed. The good news is that we can find the better way, not by following the Christian religion with all its dogmas and theological fabrications and promises of salvation, but by simply following the religion of Christ and the teachings of Christ and by trying to follow the basic commandments that we love God and we love one another, even when that's not easy. <clears throat> Each of us has to ask ourselves, who do you really want to be? A modern day Pharisee or one of those who will be embraced by God and welcomed into his family? Obviously, I think we all want to be loved and embraced by God, but that means we have to speak truth to power. We have to support those who speak truth to power. We have to vote for those who speak truth to power. And yes, I did say vote. In 16 days, we all can vote for people who support efforts to help the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give asylum to those in need. We have to live more like the Old Testament prophets and Jesus. We have to speak out whenever it means defending the weak and the poor because each of us in our own way, each of us in our own way with our own special gifts can be like those Old Testament prophets and like Jesus. We can use our own gifts and we can speak truth to power in our own way. Yes, each of us can be like that if we try. Let us pray. Oh Lord, give us the strength to do what is right. Help us know how to fight the good fight and run the good race. Make us instruments of your peace. Where there's hatred, let us sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. And grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, and to be loved as to love. And in everything we do, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage and strength to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference between the one and the other. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.